I'm Jason Bailey Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting Conversations on Contemporary Art and Culture in Los Angeles and Beyond. Today's guest is Luis Reyes. He is the executive producer and a partner at Butcher Bird Studios. He's also the husband of Claire Riffle, who was a previous guest on our podcast. She is a curator and singer slash musician. If you haven't heard that episode, please go back and check it out. Uh, she's amazing. And that's what led me into talking to Lewis. Gosh, where do we even start with this? This is the longest episode I've ever recorded, and for good reason. Lewis has a, an extraordinary background in theater and comics and film, but today he's working in a, and he operates a actual production studio here in Los Angeles. So we go through the background of what a studio actually does. They have a soundstage, they produce content, they've done a feature film. And then we also talk about on the back end of this entire conversation is VR. And Lewis's sort of wheelhouse or something he knows a lot about is virtual reality. What interested me is how virtual reality comes into play in the art world today and what artists are doing with VR and what the community as a whole is doing with VR outside of the art world. So how do we as artists use this medium to create content that isn't just, I mean, lack of a better word, uh, masturbatory. Now we talk about VR in the art world, but we also talk about VR in advertising and how that comes into play in general. So really interesting, amazing dude, uh, Lewis, and I thank him so much for taking the time to come on the episode and share the whole history of what he's been doing for all these years. So anyway, here's Lewis. Lewis? Yes, Jason. Welcome to the studio, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, so... We have been trying to do this now for a few weeks. Yeah, we kind of kept uh, canceling on each other for a while. I canceled on you more than you canceled on me. Uh, well, <laughs> so I owe you a few cancels. As always, I want to start off by saying how we actually know each other. You are married to Claire Riffle. I am. <laughs> and Claire was on the show. And Claire, if you guys haven't heard her podcast, is a curator and a wonderful singer. She is. Musician. A wonderful singer and musician. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I had been talking to Claire and Claire's like, you should go meet Lewis at work. And I was like, okay. And I vaguely knew what you did. And from, obviously I didn't know what you did. Um, I don't know what I do. You, well, I knew you were involved in theater in some way, shape or form. And what that was, you were a theater critic for many years. Uh, yeah. I mean, theater critic is definitely not a profession anymore. Wait, so, so is that why you're not doing it anymore? Whatever I, I basically was a theater critic for love of the theater, actually. So, I mean, I was at the LA Weekly for 10 years. Uh, doing that, I think the most I ever made was $75 for a review. Are you serious? Oh, it was. And by the time... That wasn't your full-time job. That was definitely not my full-time <laughs> job. Uh, I mean, at most, I would do five reviews in a week. And that was if, like, That's I saw everything. That's a uh, lot. I mean, normally it was like one or two, maybe. Okay, so I want to get back into this because I have questions about the theater... Sure. Critic part of that in the world of theater here in L.A., which I think is really interesting that I know nothing about. Your title now, uh, you are the executive producer and partner at 
Butcher Bird Studios. Yes. And can you explain what Butcher Bird Studios is? Yeah, Butcher Bird Studios is, I think we like to call ourselves a creative media company. I think a lot of people would call us a production company. We uh, produce industrials and commercials. We've shot a feature film. We've, uh, But you have a brick-and-mortar location as well. We do uh, recently. So we started the company about three, four years ago. And now this past January, we opened a brick and mortar soundstage. I guess I didn't know it was that long, the three or four years. Yeah, it's been a while. I mean, you can, you can basically have a production company run out of your house if you wanted to. It's a, like, you know, organization and hustle. It would just be non-asset base. As we grew and we uh, kind of brought more people on and we had this opportunity to have a soundstage in Glendale, we, we seized upon it and now we have it. So I think it legitimizes us a little bit more now. The actual studio space is pretty amazing. I mean, I don't even know where to start on this because for me, I used to be in theater and I used to be an actor like a long, long time ago. And I know a bit about how these things are, are put together, but really LA is a completely different animal than anywhere else. It is. And, you know, I mean, my theater past, I think, you know, I was at UCLA as an English major and someone convinced me to become a theater major. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Southern California. I was born in L.A., uh, grew up in Northern Orange County in Huntington Beach, Fountain Valley area. And I was in, involved with theater and musical theater and stuff like that, but in a very cursory way. And then, uh, so I think when I got to UCLA, I liked English, became an English major, was in a musical theater workshop with this uh, fantastic professor who just recently passed away, Gary Gardner. And uh, he convinced me that it wasn't a waste of my... The two things could go together? Yeah, well, that, 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 that wasn't a waste of my time to become a theater major, that a theater major could have... Like a life? A career, yeah. Well, that, this might be the only place that somebody would tell you that, though, too, other than New York. That is, that is possible. Um, I mean, there is a, a film and television school at UCLA, and we're even in the same building, but they don't... Like, so what was the draw to theater instead of... I know what my draw to theater is, but what was the draw to theater instead of film and television? I liked the fact that... With film, I feel there's a lot of kind of technical stuff. There's a lot of you, you're going to get one moment and there's six hours of prep to get that one moment, right? And then it's gone. It's fleeting. Whereas theater, I always thought as a place where you could go and really develop stuff over time, spend a lot of time with actors. Uh, it was going to be a live show. So you had to go over the material over, over, and, over, and, over and over and over again. again instead of just kind of shooting it and, and you're done. Uh, and I like that element of it. I also like the spontaneity of theater. The fact that you could just have a play happen in front of you. People know the lines. They could do it anywhere. I liked that. Um, and oh, I also, you didn't need to have it set up in a specific way in a specific place. Yeah, and actually some of my favorite theater pieces have been these site-specific pieces or um, people spontaneously doing something. Maybe they did a play in high school and then at a party they just suddenly start doing it again. Those Ooh. moments of spontaneity I really love. Now, we, now that we have our own production company, I can sort of do... For film now, what what I about theater? So that was going to be that was going to be my next question. So what what is that transition, and why then did you remove yourself from theater and go into this? Well, you know, I I don't think I ever removed myself from theater. I think I just sort of started in, in one place and then allowed the rest of my life to sort of congregate around me. So I still do theater. You do? Yeah. And and like when I first got out of college, were you my, an actor or were you directing? Uh, what were you doing? I was an actor. I mainly directed and wrote. Probably both badly. I'm not 
quite sure. Um, um, I, yeah, I mean, I would act, but I was never comfortable acting. But one of the things about me is that I, I respond very immediately to things. So if things were funny, I'd just start laughing, uh, which as an actor, that would be bad because yeah, you yeah, sort yeah. of break up on stage and stuff like that. But as a director, I could see that would be helpful. Yeah, I love it as a director because I really respond well. Like if someone's, if actors are doing something that I really like or discover something that I think is funny, I'll laugh. And let him push it. And that's got to help. Oh, yeah. Working with an actor like that, too, has to be pretty fantastic. Yeah, totally. And I always approach directing. Like, I never have some firm vision of what I'm going for. It's like I want the... I do this as a writer, too. I kind of maybe ill-advisedly underwrite things so that we can sort of discover it in the room together. Um, How many writers do you think do that? You know, I don't know. Um, I, I definitely know that there are some... Because there are writer-directors sometimes that are trying to work through an idea, and then they once they have actors in the room, that helps them work through that idea. So would you do that for film and television, though? You know, uh, I don't know. I, I haven't directed enough film and TV to do that. I mainly produce and sometimes write. So what's the role of, of a producer in something like that? I think a role of producer is, is to identify the things that are going to work well together. So Like put the pieces together? Yeah, kind of put the pieces together and say we should do something. How do we do it? You know, and then pull and those then help pieces. facilitate that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I do that with theater as well. I like say, I wanted, I want to see this happen and I'll go find a director who, who wants to also see it happen. And I'll find a material that would be fun. Find and, like-minded individuals. Yeah. And, like-minded individuals. And so it's a very organic way of, of forming a group. So go, going back to right out of college, uh, some friends of mine formed a, a theater company. We did like, 21 plays in like two and a half years. It was oh my like, gosh. it was a lot. It was mostly crap. I mean, it was, but well, you it was can't, like that volume. You can't, you have can't, shit you all can't do much. I mean, we had like 20 or 30 people all doing it. So it wasn't like the same people were in every single play. Yeah, but still, but still. It was, yeah. And so it was during that time that I got involved with the LA weekly and I had a day job tutoring at the Beverly Hills tutoring company. So it was flexible enough to be able to do the theater reviewing. So um, I was able to basically tutor kids during the day and then hopefully on the weekend or nights I can go to shows. And that, I kind of figured that that was my grad school uh, because it makes I, sense, right? I learned a lot about sort of critical thought, which is not something I was, was absent in my college education, but it was something that I feel was underdeveloped. And I didn't really do theater in that eight years. A few things here and there, but I was mainly just reviewing and really watching and listening and learning, learning, you know, and I was one of the younger reviewers. Actually for a long time, I was the youngest reviewer and Stephen Lee Morris, who was the theater editor at the time would often send me to the weirder plays. He would send me to the, this is a play about uh, a person and all the furniture in their house are characters. And those are his friends. And I would go see that play and really like it. Well, that's a great, strange, you know, it's fantastic learning. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I owe a lot to, to Steven. Um, he's now, he's now running LA stage Alliance, which runs the ovation award. So, Oh, uh, and he, uh, spun the LA weekly theater section, which no longer exists now into something called uh, stage raw, which is a website, a nonprofit website that R a W raw raw R a W stage raw. It does. It maintains the, the critical voice for theater in Los Angeles. Otherwise, basically. it wouldn't exist. Yeah, and uh, and technically, I'm on the board of that. Uh, oh, really? So yeah, they, they uh, as the board member, I haven't really done that much, except I've actually helped them make videos. So I've, with the production company that you, uh, yeah, and they're usually just interview videos. Like, yeah, but that's uh, interview fantastic. some playwrights and things like that. that Which uh, is relevant for people to know who they're 
talking with. Yes, yes. I definitely, learning about. I think that it would be, I'm continuing to talk to Stephen about how we can, without it being a huge financial impact on us, be able to offer that kind of media to the theater world. I think that would be great. Yeah. Um, because, and, and I know we're going to eventually get into talking about VR, but when I started thinking about VR too, that's something I want to try to work with. Well, this artists. is... I have a couple of things here. One of the reasons, just a quick note on that, one of the reasons I started the podcast, though, which is to offer a platform for people to hear about the people in their community and to get an understanding of who they were and what they were doing outside of what they saw in a white-walled gallery. Or, because I think it's really important to understand the reasons why people are making things and not have it written on a wall in a gallery space. You don't need to be foon-sped the information. But to have an insight into who a person is, it gives a, a, a richer experience actually when they're looking at it yeah great and and also i mean in a world in which which the silos of art are continually bleeding i mean mixed media multimedia well it becomes a where do you find guidance in there and it's the same i feel like with the theater stuff what you're just talking about as well too to have a platform to understand sort of the intention or the purpose of what is happening in that like through the interviews yeah yeah it, it can be incredibly helpful now the the question the second thing i wanted to ask on this is you were talking about all of the bad stuff that happened over those two years when you were making sure. this, the work artists make a ton of bad work. Yes. And one of the ways that we figure out what actually does work is by making all the bad shit. Right. But normally the bad shit doesn't see the light of day. Right. And so how does that function in a theater world where you have to make the bad stuff to figure out what's working? Does that happen in rehearsal, hopefully and not in public or how do what goes on? I mean, you know, I, I think when you're young, you make bad work. You just make bad work. Yeah. I mean, there are a few people who are young and just are geniuses automatically. Which is always amazing when I see somebody yeah. who's like 22 and they've just done this incredible thing. I'm like, how the hell? I was, I had my head up my I ass. I know. Yeah. I mean, I actually just met a 24 year old filmmaker who did this amazing VR piece too. And I'm like, oh my God, like she is so far ahead of like where it's I was at 24. Rich. It's content rich. It's stylistically rich. It's, it's great. And, and uh, yeah, I was thinking to myself, God, when I was 24, I really did have my head up my ass. Yeah, like, I like, just, I can't what imagine these people. That, yeah, these people that are just so, so self-aware and so um, have this just acumen, you know, that well, I... This is, okay, so this is a question for you. You came in and we were sitting here talking a little bit ahead of time, which we will go over in a bit. But one of the questions you said is, how long have you been making this work? Yes. And I thought it was a really interesting question and, a, and an astute question. Normally, people aren't making the work they're making right now they haven't been making it for years and years and years ahead of time unless right. they found some attraction with an audience and then that forces them into a situation where they're making that work or they found like their legs and really know that's the piece. So when you came into the studio, what was the impetus for that question? Because what you were creating is a, it sort of had a language to it and a, a world to it that was populated by objects and, and paintings that reflected those objects. And then, then you showed me the, film of what you were doing and yeah which hardly anybody has seen and i kind of feel like all of them were working together so i think that's what i was asking i was it's asking like how, how are they how long have you been working in this world i guess you know yeah, just yeah. you know like i mean there are like i worked in comic books for a while you uh, did and video games i, I, I it's no we, yeah, we comic can, books i knew the video game okay we'll yeah, talk about yeah. this in we a can, second we can talk about that in a second but um Oftentimes what would happen is that a, a comic creator would sort of create a character in a world and then just start iterating stories in that world in a way that you don't really do when you... Like in a make, good way or a bad way? In a great way, right? In a great way. They, they, you know, they, they experimented and they kind of 
mashed those characters together in, in interesting ways and had them do interesting things. Like, um, uh, we're, we're producing this um, show with this uh, comic book artist named Josh Dysart. Wait, like a TV show? or like eh, a- Yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of figuring out what it is. It might be a digital show. It might be on TV. I we're not sure. But so is this like a cell reel type thing? Like, what do they call those things? Like a pitch? Um, yeah, I guess it's a pitch. I mean, we did shoot three whole shows, but we did put a sizzle together. But the whole idea is that he's having interviews. He's having discussions with people about the creative process. That's, that's the pitch of the show. He's a very creative person himself. He's an accomplished uh, comic book writer. But he was, uh, one of the people we pulled in was someone he used to work for, which was uh, Mike Bignola, the guy who created Hellboy. What was really interesting when Mike started talking about his creative process was he couldn't draw cars and airplanes and all these like mechanical things. He was much better at these organic things. See, I know his plight. Like if you can't draw a certain thing, you just can't fucking draw it. Right. And so what, what he did is he created a world of stuff that he like drawing and that's what help uh, came out of right all these monsters and weird like cool. little creatures and i'm like well that's awesome and I that's had no idea in a way it's kind of like finding an object and sort of you know creating a narrative in a world that fits to your exactly yeah what, what I, you're good at and i think and what that, you know that's interesting I mean, in a way i know we'll talk about true crime a little bit later too but um when when um me and another playwright chris rossi got together and started talking initially about doing our true crime series too we were doing the same thing. We we're just kind of creating a world in which a lot of people can sort of play in. Well, let's just themselves. say what true crime crime is real quick. So yeah, it's, it's um, a show that me and my wife, Claire produce. She produces the music side of it and I produce the theater side of it. And it's almost like a, a cabaret type show in which there are probably about four short plays riffing off of some kind of true crime in Los Angeles. Where does it take? Is it in a theater? Or is uh, it it's at a bar. It's at the three clubs in Hollywood, uh, the uh, Vine and Santa Monica. That's Boulevard pretty amazing. Area. It's really awesome. And then the bar is like all like red curtain and wood panel. It really so kind of fits. fits the, yeah, it kind of fits the ethos. Does it feel very noir? Like eh, a film noir you know, it's thing? like I, I try to avoid saying noir because I don't want anybody to intentionally write to noir. Oh. But just the the feeling the of the whole night just has that vibe. Okay, okay anyway, so Claire sings jazz. She does, yeah, uh, amongst many other things. But I can Claire is a very film noir type she, character to she, me. She she has a she fame, would, a femme fatale. She really does. Uh, yeah, like she, she fits does. perfectly into that world. I don't think she would describe herself as that, but yeah, she definitely <laughs> has a kind of sultry. Yeah, she sort of. You know, yeah, she really really emotionally does. emotionally. She keeps herself emotionally at a distance. You know, she, she does. Yeah, but also when she's performing, she like connects. Like you mm-hmm. know what? When you yes. watch like a, a good noir film and they have inevitably a, a singer, a jazz singer or something in there. And usually in the older films, it was always like the damsel in distress. Oh yeah. Uh, but there, there would be a moment where there was a connection and that person on stage could always connect to the audience in this sort of supernatural way where everybody was like riveted to that person. Yes. The first time I f- saw Claire perform, I felt very much that and way. And that's very much her role in true crime. Is um, it really? In fact, we're, we're, we're developing true crime as a, as a TV show. And we started talking about kind of the compromises we'd have to make. We didn't want to make the music compromise. We want the, comp- the music. So we had to sort of justify to, you know, TV executives, what, about the music is important and what. Wait for true crime. Yeah. For, for true crime. I mean, it's, why it, TV it, executives. Because those are the they're TV developers that are looking at true crime. They've called me actually after the last one. They read the article to actually do a thing for it. Yeah, well, well, I mean, we're just in the initial stages. Yeah, no, it was very exciting. It was very exciting to just have somebody 
show an interest <laughs> in what it was as opposed to... It would uh, be fantastic if HBO picked it up and they had two true crimes. That would be amazing. <laughs> There'd be a true detective and true crime. We'd just go for the, the truth in HBO. The cool thing about what they responded to and what I really like about yeah, it is that, is that the music... Again, Chris and I didn't really know. We didn't put a lot of restrictions on it. Um, we just kind of had, okay, this is the format. There are going to be four short pieces. We're not going to introduce each piece. Each writer is going to choose a song that starts and ends their piece. And Claire and the band are going to interpret that piece however they want to. It might be straightforward. It might be a little bit odd. You know, and, and one, of the, one of the playwrights won iteration of this chose a chose a <laughs> chose a Robert Plant song which is probably 180 degrees from where Claire's voice is but Claire did this interpretation of the song and it was great yeah she's really, such really, a good musician she really is she a good is musician insanely, she could have she could have been professional I think so without yeah. a doubt and, and the, the cool thing about it is she puts the work into it see a lot of people sing and they have good voices so they just go and they sing with their good voice and yeah, they leave but that isn't She's always looking at the notes, wondering, okay, why, why am I going to this note? This is not going to work this way. This, this has a different, you know, she's always really going in and looking at the note, choosing the key that's going to work for her voice and still support the song, you know, stylistically going into that. I mean, it's just, yeah, she's great. And it works for true crime because, uh, so, so basically what happens is that this music band ends up becoming almost like the spirit of Los Angeles. You know, it's this, that's, yeah. they are Los Angeles yeah, yeah, yeah. and all these stories are taking place in them, in, in, within, immersed within this bed of music. It sounds amazing. I love it. I mean, I think, again, we've done five so far. I think we're going to try to do another one in the summer. And we always get really interesting writers like Chris, the guy I was talking about, he wrote Meadowland with uh, Olivia Wilde and Luke Wilson, which was a small film, but it was, Beautiful. I mean, it's it's a. Really so how do you how are you getting the connections through day, your day job or what do you? Um. Well, I've known. So uh, I mean, you've been in the theater world. A yeah, I've been I've been in the theater world a long time. I've met a lot of people, and I guess a lot of people that I knew twenty years ago are now Happening. sort of becoming thing. yeah a thing. You know, it's kind of nice. You know, it's like it's it's uh, it, I think it it gives us further legitimacy. You know, to to kind of move forward. I think if I said I had a true crime night and I had a lot of great writers. When nobody had any credits, I think they would go, oh, that's sweet. But right. I think that... The I've, fact that these people are like legitimate. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just playwrights. I mean, I had um, Steve Hodell who wrote Black Dahlia Avenger in which he argues that his father is the Black Dahlia killer. Uh, he, he contributed a piece. Uh, we, we basically theatricalized a, a series of letters that he had uh, in his book. From that's him. intense. Yeah, it was really great. And then... Um, uh, Dan Stillman, who wrote uh, 29 Palms, which is a narrative nonfiction yeah. about the yeah, marine yeah. killings in the in the 90s. You know, we we worked with her. I mean, she hasn't she was she's not a playwright. Right. But she liked to write. Plays. You helped fit her into the format. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's written some amazing theater work, you know, but yeah. I think she's still. But this format is wholly different, too. Yeah, it, it's it is definitely definitely uh, different. And she had just a great actress. Uh, Shane Easton was this uh, fantastic actress that that brought her piece to life in a way that I think. So this is, but this is exactly what you're talking. This is your role as a producer. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Bringing those pieces together and helping people fit into and making this thing work. And right. And I think that's the key. I think the success I think true crime is having is because I'm trying to, in a way, curate the creative minds that are coming into this process. And it's not that I am, I, I mean, these guys are great. I mean, these guys are fantastic, but Without the it's, right pairings and everything, right? Together. It's not just yeah. quality of writing. There are a lot of great writers out there. It's quality of it's quality of writing mixed with this willingness to collaborate. Well, 
It's and like then, a good recipe, right? Yes, you can it's have a good great, recipe. You can have a incredibly good ingredients, but if they don't go into the, the mix exactly. the appropriate way, then it could ruin the entire thing. And yeah, and, and I think that in this day and age, I think with the amount of media avenues we have and media collaborations and mixing and the, and the ease with, what am I trying to say? <laughs> in which things can be produced. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That I think that it invites a collaborative spirit that I really like. Well, also, I think, with today's ease of production and making uh, the video I just made, you were like, what was this filmed on? I was like, iPhone. Yeah, I know. Right. Everybody, everybody, and everybody can film things. It's easy to make things quickly. It's not easy to produce things in a way that is rich with content and gel well together. So the things that stand out, like the true crime thing that you're doing, it's done in in such a nice way that people pay attention to it when it's done really well and thoughtfully. Yeah, and it also takes place in a bar and they could drink all the way through. So fucking A, you have like the perfect pitch. I know, it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Come, have a beer. Or you'll see noir stuff, you'll see jazz, and you could drink the whole time. Well, essentially what you're telling them is they can come do their job, which they have to do, and go vet stuff and look for it while they can come have a beer and not talk to you while it's going on. So you're not giving them a fucking pitch. Yeah. All they have to do is sit and watch and figure out if it's going to work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, and I and I I'm I'm happy that there are people that are interested in it as a piece. How um, would that work as a how would you adjust it? What that's would you what, do? That's what we're working on. Probably just focus on one probably an anthology show, focus on one story, kind of move it forward. But I mean, the format in a way is adjustable. It's the spirit of it that I really want to maintain. The fact that the musicality is still there. Yeah. The creepiness of it's still there. It's, yeah, it's about yeah. true crime, but it's not necessarily trying to a solve the crime or tell you the facts of the crime. It's something else, something creepy. It's like we're, we're less interested in the, in the details of the investigation and more interested in the strange demons that have been released because this crime happened. Okay, I'm going to give you a pitch. Okay. Call a Cthulhu. Yes, that's oh my true. God. That would be awesome, dude. Yes, exactly. There. So, as a kid, Call of Cthulhu. Anybody doesn't know is just a horrible, crazy world. Um, mm-hmm. It's a. It's created a by um, H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft. And but the, I played as a younger a younger man. I played a lot of um, role playing games. As did I. As did all creative minds. <laughs> yes, but one of them was Call of Cthulhu. Yes. And the thing that was really interesting about that game and playing it was you had sanity points. Yes. So the sanity points were basically like things were happening in the world and something crazy would go on. And if it's too crazy, you lose sanity. Yeah. Is your, your ability to sort of uh, maintain rationalized thought. Exactly. Maintain S- rational thought in the face of something absolutely irrational. Horrible, horrible shit going on that's so crazy. And each one was different levels of like lost sanity points. And I thought it was such an interesting thing because it felt so real. You know, like how, how damaged can you be before you can't function anymore? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, essentially how much horrible, horrible shit. And you see it with like in real life with soldiers and Mm -hmm. absolutely children during the war or children like going through horrible things that like. And it's interesting because that's kind of some of the more interesting pieces in true crime. And I think all of them are interesting, but some of the more interesting ones is when the playwright decided to uh, write the perspective of the victim or write the perspective of somebody who was just a bystander. Uh, One of the most haunting pieces so far was Chris Rossi wrote this piece about the first cop on the Wonderland murders, the scene of the Wonderland murders, right? Which, what are the Wonderland murders? Uh, it was when John Holmes and, and the two of his stoned friends, they ended up robbing this one guy. And um, I'm sure other people would 
totally fill me in with all the details. This guy found out. He's very, very powerful. He had John Holmes and these two guys brought back to his home, and he made John Holmes watch while he beat the other two to death. Holy shit. Yeah, and it was just blood all over the, all over the walls. Everything it was a terrible, terrible, terrible crime. And uh, John Holmes lived. Oh, yeah, they let John Holmes live, and he, he basically, I mean, you Was know, he a porn star before that or not? Yeah, yeah, he was, a porn, he was already a porn star, yeah. So he was just dumb. I mean, he just was not a smart man, you know. The, uh, but it was this horrible, horrible scene. So Chris wrote this monologue of a guy 30 years afterwards that, who was the cop that showed up first on the scene. To see this horrible and, thing. And, and talking about it 30 years later. And how it still affects he was, he had lost his wife. He had spiraled out. He left his job. He was living out of his car. And that's, that's what I thought was interesting. It was like the crime itself was the actual catalyst for the release of the demon. In this case, the who this personal, person was. Yeah. You don't know how that's going to affect anybody when somebody walks into a situation yeah. ever. And it's such a, it was such a beautiful piece because it was, it was not, I mean, he, we could have easily gone into the details of the crime. But we didn't. He went somewhere else with it, and it was beautiful. And I really loved. It's that. more subtle too, right? Yeah, it's more subtle and and uh, and and affecting. I a, think so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's more affecting. I mean, not that I don't. I don't mind if people do talk a about piece. an actual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, if, yeah, yeah. but I, but I, I would rather it not. I mean, this is not like Forty Eight Hours or Frontline or something like that, where right. you're gonna you're gonna go through and and say exactly what happened and and move through the the, the paces of the investigation. And in a way, I kind of feel like. Um, Great art does the same thing. I mean, just in any sort of capacity that the, mo- the more obvious your direct response to something is. That, the that, less interesting. The less interesting it yeah. is, right? That, that it's, it's more interesting when you, you may have a response, but then you sort of explore. Well, if you can't figure out why you're having the response you're having, but you're having one, and then you have to investigate to figure out what is causing that reaction in yourself, mm-hmm. it makes you spend more time thinking about the piece or with the piece this is art, this is theater, this yeah, is anything. absolutely, yeah. This is the arts in general, or just thought for, like, writing or anything. Like, And I, and I think it, it definitely separates. Uh, there is a middle ground between commercialization of artistic expression and, and art. Well, I, right. I know we, there is. Well, we, ha- we have to fucking exist. Yeah, we all, we all kind of live we in We gotta pay world. the bills. But, but what really sort of separates, I feel, art from entertainment, and it's not that they can't coexist in the middle there somewhere, but I kind of feel like if a creator is truly drawn into something and is wanting to explore it and, and in a way make it more complicated in a way and then come back to it in a point where, where it can sort of express that trip yeah. through understanding right. into something vital that you can watch and go, oh my God, like I, don't, I can't explain why, but I feel as if the power of what I'm watching comes from the fact that this artist definitely explored it. And by contrast, I mean, you can easily see stuff like, you know, like a lot of sitcoms and stuff like that where, where you're like, oh, I see. The joke is that he's egotistical, and so they're making a joke that he's egotistical. And you're like, okay. All right. Great. Yeah. I understand that. Got it. <laughs> done. Move on. Yeah, exactly. Move on, right? So um, uh, not that that was necessarily a hugely um, insightful kind of comment about the difference between entertainment and art, but, but I think what it, what it gets at is, is the artists who take the journey, right? And... That's why I'm so excited about VR, right? We had a really great conversation the other day in the studio when I stopped by. What was funny to me, though, about when you walked in today was we were both like, I was like, that was a great convo. And you were like, yeah, but what do we talk about? And I was like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't remember. But It was great. It was a really good convo. But <laughs> we, so from what I remember on this conversation, and 
The reason we're talking about it is your production company creates VR content, virtual reality content. We've been doing it for about two years, and we're not the, like, I mean, there are people out there with millions of dollars right. of investment making yeah, yeah, yeah. these, like, CGI spectacles, and they're great, right? But we're definitely doing stuff that's a little bit more uh, commercial and industrial. You know, we, we've done something for an aerospace company that kind of describes what they VR. do in VR, and we've done something for the Keck School of Medicine, which is the same thing. It just kind of shows off how they're using technology to improve medicine, and those are more industrial uses. But what I'm really interested in is the narrative language or the expressive language of VR it doesn't even necessarily have to be narrative. It just the way that VR can work. And what I've gotten down to is I've been avoiding actually VR, virtual reality, and just using the word immersion, right? That if you are immersed in something, there's a language that comes with that medium, right? Installation artists do this all the time, right? right? Absolutely. They, they create a room. Because you're immersed in this room, there's a language happening. What I am interested in is people playing in this space. You could put on the goggles, you could see somebody talking to you or talking to somebody else. They're having a fight or, or doing something and walks to the right, so you follow them. They do something over here and then you, they walk to the right more and you follow them and they do something over here. And yes, you will have, you have been immersed in something and you will have watched something move around, right? But you could have done that on a framed... Well, this is exactly right. Well, this is, these are the problems and the issues we were talking about with VR and the way that VR is used by some people because there are so many limitations on the way it is viewed or who can view it at a certain amount of time. Right, yeah, and, and there are a lot of things. Like when it first came out, I mean, everybody seemed to be assuming that the person wearing the goggles had to be the POV of the story, the point of what view, was going on, right? Point of view person, like walking through a story. Like right, and, the, because, and because when you're filmed VR, you can't actually walk around, they were trying to justify that somehow. So like they'd tell a story about somebody who's tied to a chair or who's paralyzed from the neck down. Right, it's or so something. limiting. Yeah, exactly. It's very limiting. I think that once they sort of divested themselves from this, like, oh, wait a second, the, the camera doesn't have to be the POV of anybody. It could be a disembodied presence, Right. And I mean, like, think of it, if every film we watched was always the POV of someone, we would go nuts, right? And VR is the same way, right? Hardcore Henry just did that. I know, I know. And I think... It was not commercially successful. I, yes, I know. And I don't think it, it was, was... hard to watch. I think it was hard to watch. Exactly, yeah. Um, now, I'm not saying that you can't do that in VR. I'm just saying that that's only, that's one of the tools you can use. But um, as people, like, I, I was talking to a screenwriter that I wanted to write, I wanted to have them write something. And I read their script, and I'm like, okay, there, there are a lot of really good ideas here, but it, it's sort of dependent on the viewer seeing this. But what if they're looking the other way? And they're and like, they very well could be. And they very well could be. And he's like, well, they need to be looking over there. And I go, well, then you're not writing for, for immersion, for immersion, right? Yeah. You're not writing for immersion. It is a different kind of writing. It's a different kind of uh, approach to something. And well, this is the thing I thought about the other day. I had... It wasn't, I didn't have VR goggles on. I was doing one of the VR experiences where you can look on your phone and you oh, yeah. move the move, phone move around. the phone around, yeah. Does that have a, a name? Uh, I don't know. I think it's an interim sort of thing. It's <laughs> just like, it's an easier way for people to access the content that's in VR. Exactly. Than putting on goggles. Not everybody can have a pair of goggles or do it at the same time. This is the way exactly. that it's being interpreted. Exactly, yeah. Okay, um, so I had the exact thought the other day is I was like, I'm looking around. And I was like, "Oh shit!" Like, wait, 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 should I turn back because I don't know what's happening behind me? Right. You you should not have that feeling. I think a successful immersive piece it should never <clears throat> engender or, or or evoke that feeling in somebody. Well, this is the thing though. In in real world, 
we have other senses right to help us determine what the so i can hear yeah. i can feel the wind i know if a car is coming up behind me mm-hmm. and it's going to hit me there are different things that are going to tell me in real world than it would in like a vr world sure yeah and that's and that's assuming that even in the vr world you want to depict reality which again is another well, argument i have right. with people that are like going if you had the power to invent a world around you, why would you invent the world that you already walk around and live in? It's like, there's so many other, but yeah, you're right though. I mean, there's, there are more senses that you can actually rely on. And there are also other, basically you shouldn't have to just watch people. And I think I was trying to convey this and, and, and someone articulated it pretty well. And that is this, what you're authoring is not the plot and characters which is what you normally do when you're doing framed stuff, right? You, you're, you're plotting characters, you're writing what they are, and, and the backgrounds are kind of the, the added thing, right? They must do this so they're in a coffee house, so you have to have a coffee house in the background. What you're authoring in immersion is you're authoring the environment. You're authoring what's around you, and plot and character precipitates from that, if at all, right? That the environment itself teems with a kind of, it's just compelling to be there. Right. And it's hard to imagine how to write this because it's in its infancy. Right. This is. Well, I think what would be interesting in this, and I could be completely wrong, is something that video games have figured out. Yes. Open world content. Right. So I like how video game, I mean, that, that, I think video game creators are actually ahead of the curve. Well, they're thinking in these terms of creating the entire. So open world content, and those who don't play video games, open world content being your character can move anywhere they choose within this open world. Yeah. There's no um, point A gets you to point B gets you to point C. Or there is sometimes, but it is sort of a, a choose-your-own-destination type thing. Right. And and those things can affect other things that happen within the game. So it's very open. Yeah. And in, in VR video games, that feeling... I've never played one. Yeah, that feeling is already is enhanced more. Right, it is. and because they they do give you a sense of being able to move in that world, you can, it is your POV. You can move in that world, and it's a different kind of sensation. VR filmmaking, though, just like regular filmmaking, video games, VR filmmaking, and VR video games are different beasts as well. Right, one is trying to immerse you in that open world and kind of moving around and, and stuff, like, and one is you have to accept that the camera is going to move or stay and you're, you're, you're stuck there. Just like when you're watching a movie and when you're watching a movie, you don't automatically think you can look to the right. If well, the camera doesn't go there. the, the games that I saw come out for like Oculus Rift over the holidays, cause they were pushing video games. So mm-hmm. you'd buy yeah. your Oculus Rift and your computer and everything else and have this setup. They're all the point of view, the POV mm-hmm. yeah, with like, disembodied hands. Yes. Like reaching into a glove box and pulling out a gun because somebody's coming up to like attack you. Exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't, and they're fun. Are they? They're kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, again, I've only played a few of them, but again, I think it's with any, with any video game, the, the gimmick will wear out. It's totally going to wear out. And so at that point, then it's how well the games are written. Do you know where we're at in this is I think it's the same place we were at when like PlayStation came out, like, in, in its sure. infancy. Yeah, yeah. Where when a lot of really bad games could get a lot of you popularity could, because... Because you'd never seen anything exactly. like Exactly, yeah, yeah. It was this idea of like something so new and so like fresh and the ability to do something you were never able to do beforehand, but the actual content of what you were working with is pretty poor. Yes, yes, exactly. And I, and I think that, I mean, in any sort of medium as it's growing, we're going to get a 
broader and broader sense of what the creative potential is. Okay, so let's talk. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Like, how do you? And we let's bring it back into art too, because for me, it's easier to. Before we get into the art, let me let me tell you a quick story about. I would love to hear the story. Sorry, it's because well, <laughs> I, I think it. I think it kind of illustrates what I'm what I'm getting at, and that okay. is the wonderful thing about art. And the wonderful thing about kind of the fact that we have artists. I feel like there's a butt coming on. There's a diet. No, no, there's no, there's no, but is that we look at art that came before and learn a kind of language, whether it's reacting against it or whether it's embracing ideas to inform the art of the future. Right. And that's why we have, I think such, I think we're in a beautiful artistic space right now. I think that, you know, and and, uh, earlier before I was talking about, We've in, in, encouraged collaboration more than ever before, too. Whenever there's a new medium, like video games, right? What I'm always interested in is the people who grew up with it, right? Video games, my parents did not grow up with video games, right? Video games came out when I was a child, right? So I would not assume that my parents would be as good, or people my parents' age would be as good as telling stories within video game worlds because they just didn't grow up with the medium, right? But the people that did grow up with the medium 30 years later they're making video games and suddenly they know how to do it, right? Because they've been raised in, doing it well. with this medium. Yeah. They're doing it well because they understand the medium. Right. So I guess with VR in immersion filmmaking, I I'm excited about the five-year-old now who is going to grow up understanding immersion in ways that we can't, because we're trying to apply a lot of our, you know, preconceptions knowledge of, of video games. Games, knowledge of yeah. video games or even preconceptions of film because, like, like again, all these people, all people write, writing VR film pieces, but they're actually just framed pieces in which you just move around, right? Because they can't conceive of what the immersion is well, like. So I'm really ex- excited to see what the five-year-old now does when they're 25. Well, essentially what happens is the rules get rewritten as to what the rules are. Yes, exactly. And, 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 that's, and that's great, right? So I was at USC. I was, I was doing this uh, presentation of the stuff we had created so far. And uh, out of the six exhibits, we were the only one that was live action. They were all CG, VR things. We were live action. And I had a person, I don't know, probably in their 30s or something, uh, in a group of people that I was saying just this, that I'm really excited. I'm really excited to see the, the future with the five-year-old now. I, I think they're going to be the true artist in this medium because they sort of grow up with it where we're kind of just trying to find our way. And, and she says, well, we are very creative people. And I didn't even think about what I said is why would someone take offense to that? Why would somebody take offense to being excited about what the next generation is going to well, bring Because us? it means that she doesn't have a role in contributing to what that is. Exactly. And that's what made me feel like, oh, I'm so, I'm so glad that I don't feel that. I'm so glad that I could be excited about the new generation of artists. So the, what, is your, what is your role in then? Because you create VR content. You have um, a production company that creates VR content. I, so what is your role in that? I do. Well, I mean, I'm going to try to create compelling VR content myself, but right. my role is to also inspire and welcome in artists who I think are younger and are thinking about it in different ways and help them facilitate them in some way. Um, when I brought those, when I brought those Cal arts dancers to do the lens test that I was talking about a little earlier, this was, we were talking about this yes, before yeah. we got on the show. Yeah. So there, there's this lens special VR lens. And instead of just doing a test where we're walking around it, just waving at the camera, I wanted to do something more interesting. We were trying to, you know, test several cameras. So I invited some dancers from CalArts to join us and a BMX biker to join us. And we just had different subjects. What was interesting about it is talking to those dancers afterwards. But, but, but oh yeah. So I was going to tell yeah. the whole story. Sorry. So <laughs> uh, 
Halfway through uh, this test, uh, the director that we were working with, Stephen Calcote, saw the BMX biker and what they were doing, he was doing, and saw the dancers and what they were doing, going, let's put them together. And I went to the dancers, I go, are you comfortable with that? And they were like, yes. I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) You're like, okay, great. Great. So I thought it was like a safety thing. but And so it was beautiful. Like the BMX biker was doing these kind of spinning circles like he normally does, but the dancers were responding to the movement of the bike. And in a way, I was like, oh, my God, I wish this wasn't a lens test because I wanted to pull out our real good VR camera and, and just shoot this. Well, but, but you can. Yes. Yeah, so and that's the thing. We, now we know that something like this can happen. But what was really exciting about talking to those dancers afterwards is that was the first exposure they had to VR, uh, VR filmmaking. Oh, really? And they were thinking and they were young. They're, you know, they're Cal Arts. They're probably in their early 20s. Some of the ideas they were coming up with about how to kind of play with the cameras in an immersive space, I'm like, yes. You're like, oh. Yes, you're, you're coming up with some good stuff. You just made me some money. So what's my... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's right, because I'm going to make a living out of abstract dance in VR. Um, but, um, but what was cool about it is my role then is to invite them over again and say, okay, here's the camera. Here. Let's talk about the ways you were dealing with that. And let's do it, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and to, try to, to try to, as much as I can, I mean, obviously, we're a production company. We have to make a living. I, I, can't, I can't just promise the world an open door and have everybody rush in. But I can identify <laughs> people. I can identify people who I think, think are, try, are, are thinking about it in a different way, a different way than I can. Because, again, I'm 42 and I have my own biases on this stuff, you know, where people that are just kind of burgeoning artists, they're thinking about things in different ways. So the conversation we were having also earlier, not this specific one, we were talking about, I, I had made the film and the film was basically like my sculpture is moving into space. Yes. The reason I made the film is because I was thinking of Martha Graham Dance Company. Right. And yeah. uh, Noguchi. They collaborated together on pieces. And when they collaborated, what was striking me about Noguchi's work was that these sculptures weren't finished sculptures he would normally have put into an exhibition or a show space. They didn't actually become finished objects until the dancer interacted with the objects on stage. Right. Yes. So yes. then you start seeing this, this activation of space becoming a larger thing where the whole stage becomes encompassed in what that actual physical piece is. To me, it was interesting that an object wasn't finished and couldn't be a participant unless something was interacting with it. Yeah. So when I made the video, the video was an idea of like having the actual objects be the participants and give right. em, have them embody their own sense yeah. of space and dance and everything else. Which I loved. I mean, and I thought that, I mean, that's, I, I was picking up exactly that. You I were, I, yeah. I felt we, we talked about it afterwards, but to me, this idea of VR goes one step beyond that even. So how do you then take something like that and push it into a field where then all of a sudden what it's it's that exact same language like how do we test the boundaries of what we're doing because Noguchi and Graham had their boundaries for what they were doing sure they laid out the rules of what this participation was I made up rules for this video when I was setting up the video because you just sit and watch yeah right so VR what becomes the rules what's the next step in that stage that's what's exciting that's what's exciting and that's what I'm really eager to to discover and that's why i mean the nice thing about the partners that i have and there are five partners in the company is that they are supportive of that as well of playing right? of yeah playing so so you know when i have my wacky idea of inviting cal arts dancers to just do a they're bunch like of, let's do it and see yeah they're, they're very supportive i mean they're they're 
again, like me, they're going, okay, well, we need to make a living. We need to be able to get. But if it doesn't affect the bottom line. Exactly. If it doesn't affect the bottom line and it's only about kind of playing, I think they're very supportive of that. I mean, we do this already, even with our junior editors that come in and are editing like a lot a lot of times they'll say listen we want to do a short film and we we want to inspire that too so we go great use our cameras use our lights this was one of the really interesting things when i came over to the studio the other day the way you were describing butcher bird studios was how you produce content and you put it together but you are still willing to work with people to figure out what works for them in a really nice it's not like your typical studio production model of how things are working right it feels very open-ended but also very creative. I mean, I hope it's creative. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it very much seemed that way. It was yeah. really exciting. It got me excited. I, like I walked through the door. I was like, holy shit. I was like, Lewis, you got to look at this film and we could talk about it. Yeah. We had this long conversation because it's just, it was such a nice open-ended experience. It's got to be a great place to work. Yeah. You know, it is, it is a great place to work. And I think it's something that we, we sort of, it, it sort of happened organically, but I think, you know, finding like-minded people who all want to do interesting things. And it, it's not that everybody is just like a lover of modern dance and that's why they're letting me do this. <laughs> um, I mean, it, far from it. I mean, there are oftentimes, I mean, one of my part, our partners even says like, I don't believe in VR. I think it's a fad, right? However, he doesn't stop us. In, in fact, actually actively helps us with a lot of the VR things we do. So it's, it's not that everybody's but uh, critically on the same page, they're spiritually on the same page, yeah. right? That we're all kind of helping each other out. One of the great things about like great things about certain creative people is when they can be open-minded enough to know that they don't know everything. I feel like that is something that we all share. That Everybody, all the partners in this, business. all the partners in the business do not assume they know everything. And that it's I think so is our, important. It is because, and rare because it means we ask questions it means we seek answers. We we don't we don't have a rigid understanding of this is how things are done or has to be done or has to be done right. Well, and also in in this day and age in media, I mean, the way things are done are seem to be changing every six months, right? Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, like, hey, this is the way things are done. Oh, now Premiere has a plugin that does that. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that changes our workflow. And one of the reasons I think too that this person thinks VR is a fad also probably is because VR is limited in the sense of how many people you can reach. You run a business where yeah. you're, the model of the business is essentially like you produce content, that content that is distributed, but it's distributed through advertising or through film. It's, it's a matter of how many different people you can reach all at once. Sure, yeah. And, you know, and how you monetize that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, it's probably unfair in saying that he says it's a fad. I really, I'm just what, using it yeah. as a what, what, talking what, point. What I think it is is that it's not a way for us to make money right now. Right now, the resolution and the frame rate and the means of distribution is ugly and muddy and not developed. Well, and you can't reach enough people in your advertising to actually make it work for the advertising. That is true. But the way that when, when people started talking about it as, well, it's a solitary experience and that can't be, I remind them that so is reading a novel. Right. And, and people You're say, you, right. can't, you right. can't have media because it does, it, it's not a communal activity. Well, no. I mean, when you read something, no, you're it's absolutely an isolated right. experience. And you know what? The, my impetus is to say that it doesn't reach enough people because it is a type of medium that traditionally would be used right. exactly. for mass exactly. audiences all at once. Right. Who's to say that it can't be treated as a, a book? There are ways to make it more of a social thing. There are ways to make it a little bit more interactive if you add gaming elements or if you add social media elements into the fabric of what you're building, yes. But I think there's a value to understanding it as if you wanted to create something that really people more experience as an individual 
like an isolated experience like a book, reading a book, you can do that, you know? And, yeah. and I think that that is very powerful. I think putting on those goggles, blocking out the rest of the world, and watching what a director has put in front of you, a world that they've set up. Be pretty amazing. Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty amazing. The problem in the art world right now, though, is that when people do VR, they do it in such a way that you are the floating body moving through a preconceived notion of what you should be seeing at all times, basically. It doesn't feel as rich in content as the actual work that's outside of the VR. I would agree. And, and I've only seen a few art. Me as well, too. VR I haven't seen it. So, yeah. I, I, but I do agree that even when people are making kind of art, arty films in VR, the novelty of it being VR still is almost more important than what the content of the right, actual, exactly. Yeah, right? Yeah. And, and again, there are a few things that I've seen that I still really like. Are they the epitome of what? the medium has to offer? No. Right. And I well, think that's this what was, so you're talking about it being muddy and we went to through tech specs yeah. for the dorky individuals who want to like cut this off right now. The interview's done, but <laughs> we, let's, let's go, let's go into the tech. <laughs> yeah. I like no, that. but we were talking about tech and how, when you typically film HD film, mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll get. Uh, do they film in 4K regularly now, or what are they filming in? I mean, yeah, I mean, like if we go out, I mean, rarely are we shooting something not 4K. So because even if the final delivery is 1080, we're 1080p. shooting for a for for uh, 4K so that we have the flexibility. And then more and more people are asking because mas- if you're mastering at, it 4K, if you're at 4K, you can cut it down to something smaller, edit yeah. it out to a smaller. Yeah, and we actually the last thing we shot, the last big thing we shot was at 6K. Oh, really? Yeah. It was uh, the dr- Red Dragon. We shot it at 6K. And again, the final output that we were going to provide was 1080 still, but it allowed that much flexibility. Did you use it? Um, the flexibility. Now, did we, you did, it? we did not do the editorial. This was a job we were just paid to shoot it. Does it look um, like they did it? Um, yeah, they, they, they did push-ins and stuff like that. Like Basically, they so basically, m- mimic for, dolly shots and stuff. Okay, so so when, you, you don't get the parallaxing of a real dolly, but still. You so know. for people listening, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, when you film, like if you're going to film a big scene, like a landscape, let's say, yeah. and you got like a guy riding across on a horse or something like that, if you're filming in 4K, then what you can do is you can cut into the guy on the horse. Right. And then have it be 1080. Exactly. Or 720 or whatever it needs sure. to be if you're really zooming in. Yeah. 720 now almost sounds like SD. It, <laughs> no, it's truly. Yeah. So Even though um, I know it's HD. Basically, it allows you the freedom to have high definition digital content. Yeah. At some point, our human eye can't, can't even tell, tell anymore. Difference. It is so, you know, so. But is that at 6K? Is that 4K? Um, what are we? You know, I mean, I think, I think probably the human eye probably taps out at about 4K. So I, what's I, the point of the 6K? They, they have higher well, than 6K or not? They do. There, there are some cameras that can shoot 8K. 8, I mean, right? these files are massive. But for VR, the thing is about when you're shooting for VR, though, when I shoot 4K, that's a great, pristine, beautiful image. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Right? But it's because it's in a frame. I filmed that. Well, this is a good example. So the film that you just saw, you the one that I 4K. did, I shot on 4K, and I edited it down to a super wide angle mm-hmm. through the 4K. But one of the reasons it looks so good is because it was shot on 4K, right. even though it's not displaying on 4K. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's what gives you, it gives you a lot of flexibility. But with VR, you shoot 4K and you have to spread that all across the whole oh. sphere. So it's, it's not 4K. What is it, it like is, 720 or? Yeah, it's probably the equivalent of probably 480. You know, oh, um, so it's like, it's like, so 
even if we can now shoot at 6K or even 8K, I'm wrapping that around a sphere. So so what would happen if you limited what that sphere was? Like VR um, wants to give you the full 360. What if you only made it 180 and you could only deal with the things? Oh, you could do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. then all of a sudden... you can. There are, there are people that make 180 films all the time. In VR. You know? uh, well, yeah. I mean, just behind you is just black or, or a logo or something, and you're just watching the or 180. Or a repeat of what's in front of you. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I actually really like the idea of having one film in front of you, one film back of you, and they inform each other as you're it's watching. It's sort of amazing. Yeah, yeah you, could, you could do all sorts of stuff. But, but um, the reason why I think higher shooting at like 10K and even 12K is important is because that will allow us to do really good VR films. And they're going to look great because then there's plenty of information that could stretch all the way around the head gotcha. of somebody, right? And that's why I think it's important. Right now, VR, the distribution of VR, even, even the uh, what we call stitching, right? Where we, you know, we shoot several cameras and you stitch them together into one sphere. So you can right? have multiple cameras with high resolution and then you stitch them together into a... Yes, you can. So we, we have, we have a four... We built a rig... Uh, Stephen Calco built a rig, one of my partners, uh, with four GH4s. And it's great. The, What's it, a GH4? It is a Lumix camera. It's a DSLR. Um, and, and it shoots 4K. It shoots, four, it shoots 4K. Yeah, exactly. And so each of those images is 4K, but there's a lot of overlap. So let's say, let's say that I can get an 8K image out of that. Here's the problem. I bring it into the stitching software, stitch it together. It looks beautiful. Currently, the stitching software can only Output. export... 4K. So it can only do 4K. So, so I can create even... a great image, but you know, the, the beauty of using the GH4 instead of say the GoPro rig is that the GH4 is a much better camera than the GoPro. So you're going to get nice little lens flares and you're going to get a richer color space. And well, it's like, like using a, uh, a fixed lens versus like a zoom lens. On, yeah, exactly. Like a prime yeah. lens. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you're going to, you're going to get something, you know, that, that looks photographically just a lot better. Now there are better cameras even than that. I mean, you know, there are many people making VR cameras all the time and using better and better cameras. Yeah, but to all this so. shit is like keeping up to date with all that stuff and spending the money, the amount of money going into yeah. these things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're not, I mean, we're not a technology company, so we're doing this for the artistic part of it. And we want to work with companies that are more technologically savvy and try to offer ourselves as a, a creative partnership. With yeah. You know, I have a few meetings next week talking to other companies about that exact same thing. It's a hard sell because everybody's sort of like, well, they all want to be in house. Oh, probably. you're creative people. It's like, well, yeah, everybody's creative people. And I'm like, well, you know, yes, but I think we're creative people who seek the knowledge of the tech and want to be able to use the power of the tech to inform the, what, what, create what, richer content. Right, create richer content or identify people who can create richer content if they only had blank, you know, yeah. the new technology. I, I, th I think resolution is a really important question in VR because right now what happens is that people that, not like, like me, I'll put on almost anything and really watch it. And I understand it's low res because of the limitations. Yeah. Of the, but if I show it to somebody but else... you'll lose a viewer in two seconds. Right, you'll lose a viewer in two seconds. And I've shown it to people, and people say, why is that so fuzzy? Can, why is it so fuzzy? They I'm like, notice well, it right away, yeah. Yeah, it's not fuzzy, it's low res. <laughs> you know, it's like, you can't... And also, these are big files. And yeah, oftentimes, huge. they need to be compressed. And in the compression, you're going to get 
even more of a degradation of the image. Then, oh, then also just sort of the lack of lighting techniques that have been developed for VR. And so oftentimes the Wait, two it's different. Oftentimes you need to hide the lights, right? So, or, oh. or, or if you don't, you're going to paint them out or you embrace them and let them be part of the environment. I've seen a lot of effective use of practical lights actually in VR and a lot of really good, well-lit things, right? But oftentimes they have a CGI element somewhere, right? So, um, you know, you have, you filmed your thing and then you either you paint out the ceiling so that it looks yeah. like a regular ceiling yeah. or, I mean, basically you, you get the, you get the point. Uh, all these techniques are being developed and, and everybody's doing them and everybody's sharing them online. It's exciting. Like it's exciting. Yeah. I mean, I very, like I've talked to a lot of other production houses that are doing VR. I mean, we're in direct competition with them or, I mean, they're still sharing their knowledge and we're sharing ours. Everybody wants to grow. Everybody wants to grow. I think everybody, the nice thing about it is everybody wants their, the, the medium to grow. Well, also <laughs> you're, you're nice people. So well, yes. working with decent people I guess so, are yeah. not going to, you know, they're not going to fuck you over. Yeah. I guess I haven't run, <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess I yet haven't run into the, the <laughs> production house. that's like, going, no, all of our secrets are ours, you know, because I guess, I guess if someone has that attitude in this day and age, they're going to be left behind. Yeah. They're going to be on the back end of whatever's happening. Right. Because I mean, it used to be that technology developed at a, well, it was what it was. A you relatively have your, predictable pace. And you, yeah. could, you could hide certain technological innovations and then release them to the marketplace and stuff like that. Where now, when things are moving at the speed of light and there are 12-year-olds in their garage inventing a solution to something that right. Kodak hasn't come up with yet, you know, it's <laughs> like, you know, that's that's exciting. But yeah. it's also, like, fierce. And I think that it it definitely opens up the lines of communication a little bit more because now everybody's like, well... There's no way we're going to compete in this space. We have to, we have, have to, to share. Share, yeah. The I was talking about. So right now, I was mentioning that the a lot of VR is being shot on multi-camera rigs, right? So several cameras, and then you stitch all those images together to create the one image around you. There's this company uh, in Syracuse, New York, uh, Sphere Optics. That's where my mom's from. Oh well, then there, maybe she can stop by this place. <laughs> that built this one lens solution. And the nice thing about the one lens solution is that you could put it onto any camera, right? It's a lens, not a camera. Oh, it's not proprietary to their own. Right. So we, we tested it with, uh, that was the, that was the BMX biker and the, and the, the Cali this is the one, the lens you were testing. Yeah. The lens we were testing. So we, we tested it with a red dragon. We tested it with a C a Canon C 300. We tested it with an a seven S which is a Sony camera and, and an a seven R and a GH four. Well, I mean, there are limitations to the, what the lens is right now. I mean, it's still growing, right? But the nice thing about it is, well, A, first of all, the, the best compliment uh, from the guy who came over, that was the best compliment he could have ever given. Uh, we were walking to lunch afterwards, and he says, you know, you guys really took this test seriously. And we're like, right? He's so like, he's the guy from the company. Yeah, he's from the company. He was, he's actually, he was the engineer. <laughs> oh, really? So, yeah, what was great about it was that a lot of the questions we were asking, he, he knew, he knew what they You're were. You're talking to the guy who made it. Yeah. We talking to the guy who made the <laughs> lens. It was really, he was very generous with his, his time. And, and it was, it was great. It was a but great test. All he around. appreciated the fact that you guys were really making, an we effort wanted to, to make an effort to really test a lot of different cameras and, and really stress test it not only, and, and then have the subjects be a little more interesting to look yeah, at. Right. Yeah, so yeah. we can really kind of see what motion blur looks like with this or, right. you know, and you know, we, we noticed some flaws. I mean, one of the, one of the problems right now is that it's, it's hitting that sensor, the sensor of the camera as a, as a donut, like a round yeah. image. 
Um, the only problem is that when you do that, it's Are a square you sensor. Content? You're losing the sensor, right? So if you're shooting something at at 8K, you're only getting 5K worth of yeah. data, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. you know things like that, and they they knew that that was an issue beforehand, but but it was interesting to see kind of that in action. Um, but we were actually less interested in that because we kind of feel like there might be that you knew solutions. that was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. We were more interested in kind of seeing how how figures were going to work in that space. I mean, this is one lens trying to capture a 360 degree image. Right. You know? How does that function? Yeah. Is there going to be distortion? Is there going to be, and even if there is distortion, is an interesting distortion. Well, I, does it know. work for you? Like, yeah, yeah, it could work. So, so that's, you know, we're, we're going to hopefully get the footage. They, they have to process it into these equi rectangular files. Equi rectangular just means the sphere flattened, you know, like yeah. a map or yeah, a globe. Yeah. So you can you watch know. it at once. Exactly. So you can watch it on a flat surface. Um, How much and, is the lens? Uh, they're renting it, I think for 2,500 a day. Okay. So it's it's a significant yeah, but like if you're running a studio yeah exactly if you're running a studio and also the nice thing about it, it if this lens uh, I'm sure the next couple of iterations are going to be even better but if you rent this lens for twenty five hundred you might be saving ten thousand dollars on your post side right not having because to stitch you have it all at or once. something yeah you know well you also well, don't have to stitch man right? hours yeah man on hours just like putting that thing together now the, the thing is as we rise with as, as that moves forward. Um, the development of lenses like that saving man hours on the multi-camera rigs, computational stitching is actually getting more advanced too. Quicker. Yeah. So people don't have to actually stitch manually now. They could just put it through a computer and the computer and it does makes it itself. Yeah. And, and a lot like they're getting like, I think every six months, I think they get a hundred times better. Holy moly. So it's like, it's like amazing. I've seen things come back from computational stitching and I'm like, Oh my God. God. You can't even tell. You can't even tell. This looks really good. Now there are always little problems. Of course. Obviously, uh, you know when people walk, uh, you know, walk past the scene. Into yeah, yeah. You 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 sometimes get a little distortion there. But again, that's the kind of stuff you could fix manually later on in the process. But at least most of your stitching is already done. The hard right? part's in. Yeah, and I think that probably you know give it five years and there probably won't be anything like a stitcher. You know yeah, what I mean? Right. It's like the computers will just do everything and, and you just have to kind of Could create. it be happening in process while it's actually in the camera or the lens or whatever else? Actually, yeah. That, that was something that someone else mentioned. Yeah, like even if you were using a multi-camera It'll rig, it, itself. it can even, yeah. And uh, and there is a, a GoPro camera. Because, because they'll just talk to each other. If they're all the yeah. same... Yeah, as proprietary. Long as, if you're using the same camera on every one of them, they can yeah. just speak to each other. As long as there's a computer that kind of binds them all together, yeah. that computer... It'll know which it'll one. Just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, and so it'll be interesting to see kind of where this goes. But a lot of VR is going to be CG, and a lot of VR is going to be filmed, and there's going to be a lot of you know, it's exciting stuff. It's in the exciting middle. times. Yeah, and also, I mean, we haven't even talked about the stuff that's not art or entertainment. You know, like there are a lot of other uses for this. Um, we did a um, there's a scope in Valencia that does a Civil War reenactment every year, and we went up there and helped them do oh, a that's cool VR. Yeah, capture yeah. it. And in doing it, we realize, oh my God, like if you could recreate a historical moment, VR would be a fascinating way. Amazing. It would be an amazing way to just kind of have people learn. Feel like you're there. It's not that you couldn't get the same story out of a hundred pictures of that event, but to put yourself there, I was thinking about the, and I totally forgot her name. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm beating myself up for forgetting her name, but the first a black student who went to a white school, right? That's oh, yes. the scene that was going on there was packed with tension. And what we see is we see, you know, we see the, the National Guard and we see the guys, you know, escorting right. her in and stuff like that. 
but when we're not really feeling... It's those other senses, right? We're right. talking about those it's other everything senses. everything around you, right? So, you know, all the protesters over there and the military figures and everything. And just, if you could recreate that moment and then shoot it in VR, oh my God, it would well, give you a sense of that historical and moment. And then if you had kids, like, see it in that way. Exactly, yeah. That's real, a whole real way of experiencing the way it maybe was in, in a little truer sense. Absolutely. And of course, journalism. I mean, when you actually have the camera in reality, like... Uh, New York Times had that thing where they put the VR camera on a rooftop in Fallujah, and you're you're there, you're in Fallujah. Oh, I didn't see that. That's what's going on. Well, wouldn't it have been handy for like a Trump protest or like oh, a Trump like someone must have rally? Done it. I'm sure there's. I'm sure to be in the middle of a Trump be... rally when shit is just oh, like yeah, nasty yeah. and horrible. It would be it would be great to get that. I think there probably must be footage. Of, of, of VR footage. Again, a lot of the cameras are so low res though, especially the smaller ones you could get into a rally that it would be, you know, really low res. But once the resolution gets higher, I mean, I can see photojournalists and, and using it to oh tell a story God. and repeat it. This is great. It would be great. You know, and I've already seen, they've already been doing this um, at um, NAB last year, National Association of Broadcasters convention, right? Yeah. NAB last year I went on, uh, I only went to like two or three panels because, I mean, the floors are massive. I was just visiting all these booths. One of the panels I went to was journalists already working in VR. And the cool thing about it was that everybody on that panel, there were like seven of them, they had been doing it for like five years. Oh. It wasn't like they just started doing it. So this. they knew what the limitations were. They knew what was working, what yeah. wasn't working, how it worked. It was really exciting. And all of them just had this like, yeah, it's a game changer. It's a game changer, wow. right? Because now instead of... Again, telling a story through 100 pictures or, as is often the case, one picture on the front page in the New York which Times. Which can be powerful. Which can be powerful, but it can also be misleading into yeah. actually what was going on, yeah. right? I mean, I mean, think about it. I mean, if we had, I mean, Trump will be able to say, oh, yeah, I had a lot of people, just the cameras were pointing in the wrong direction. You could have a camera in there. And you could just look around like, you and say, wrong. sorry, you're wrong. Yeah, uh, this is what it looks like, you know? Um, so that's what I find really exciting about, about this. The other thing is, we're talking about big events here. What I also think is really powerful is when I first started looking uh, a lot of VR stuff, I mean, I like Paul McCartney. I don't seek out Paul McCartney songs. I don't really like, I mean, I like him a lot, right? right. Um, I like the Beatles a lot, right? I saw this piece in which the camera was at his concert. It was at the front of the stage. Behind you is 300,000 screaming fans. And in front of you are his two guitar players. He's up there in the piano. His drummer's right there. And I'm like, oh, okay. So it's like being like in the concert. on the foot of the yeah. stage and watching this concert. That's kind, of, that's kind of cool, right? But then it crossfades into another camera that's kind of almost like over Paul's shoulder at the piano. And to the right of you is the drummer. Yeah. And he's right there and Paul's right there. And I looked down at his hands and all the beautiful imperfections of live performance really hit me. I'm like, oh my God, I feel so present. close and yeah. present in this yeah. moment, you know? And it's different than being at a live show, right? I mean, rarely do you ever have this kind of access to somebody, right? And it's not that if, if there was a, a camera, like a regular traditional framed camera over his shoulder and you saw his hands and then it, it turned around and you saw his face and yeah, you get a sense of being close to him, but the immersive quality of the VR thing was amazing. And so I'm thinking about like, you listen to someone on the radio, you like the song, you're like, God, I wonder what they're like playing. You go online and you download a file that them is playing. them playing. And so you sit in the room with them. 
It's like having a personal experience with it's having like yeah, and and I think that's a really rich quality that we we should explore more. That's something we've never had before. This sounds like it might be nice in true crime. Uh, exactly. Well, I've, I've already been thinking about VR stuff for true crime. So I think about every iteration of media for that. The one last thing I'll say is stuff like, just imagine 50 years from now, students of history basically will have the most amazing documentation ever. They'll sit there and say, okay, well, Trump, you know, lost the 2020 election, right? Yeah. So there's a VR camera there. And they could they could look around and they could see it, or better better yet, you know, people fifty years from now are are writing about the Trump administration. They can actually go into they a can, conversation that's happening and see exactly who the person was, and not have it flavored by right the person writing. Exactly, yeah, and really kind of see all of the the things that are often, yeah, they're often sort of. I mean, of course, you can always lie for that camera too. I mean, it's a camera like anything well, it's else. It's true if you're going to set up a stage. Yeah. It's just a different type right. of stage. It's just a different type of stage, and I think it's a different kind of... But what I was really getting at was, think about it, if, if we had VR cameras 50 years ago, just imagine how much more vital the Gore-William F. Buckley debates would be. Right. If you had the... You, you, basically, there were three chairs, both of theirs and yours. And instead of relying on what that what direction the camera's going, and of course the camera's showing reactions to William F. Buckley, what Gore, uh, Gore says and vice versa, Gore Vidal, you could see, like, if, if Gore, Gore Vidal says something, you could always look at Buckley and go, oh, whoa, that really, that really riled him, didn't it? You know, you could see, right. the, you know, if for some reason they're playing with their hands or something, you could see I that. think what's interesting about that is the ability to go back and rewatch it and see it yeah. from different points of view. Because the problem with this is what you were talking about with your, your writer. Well, I wrote, they have to be looking over to the left. Mm -hmm. So the problem is, is if you're not looking to see what the reaction is, or you're not looking at the hands, what's going to happen is you need to see a repeat of it to look at it from a different angle again. Right. Exactly. And that's what, that's what I think is so powerful about what VR can do. Now, me personally, from a professional point of view, um, we're probably not going to get into that game because that's like, you know, we're, we're more of a creative house. You got to make money. We, well, we got to make money. I mean, people who, who let's I say, guess you could make money yeah, doing this too. If you, if you hooked wanted, up with the New York Times and yeah, like everybody else. And, I mean, if you wanted to be that kind of production house and wanted to have the latest VR technology and just be hired to do live events, you right. could do that. There are companies right now that actually make money doing that. They do the VMAs or right, they're there at right, the right. Emmys or the Grammys or whatever. But again, it's more of a, that's a more of a, you're pulling off something very technical and and the technical is very creative. There's a lot of creativity yeah, in the technical, but it's different, but it's different right? It's different. And what we we're a little bit more about creative content, you know, and they're more about creative tech, which I think is great. But again, I mean, I want them to be doing that though, because so you can yeah benefit from like that. think about it. I mean, if it, yeah, it's like it's like let, let's say God, I wonder what the wonder what the crowd really looked like when uh, when so and so won the Oscar. Well, put on the goggles and, and look go around. On. Yeah, go hey, look at that, you know, um, and I. Again, I think it's exciting. We're talking about all the exciting things about VR, but I also, one of the first VR events I went to was something that the Alamo Draft House had put together. Right. Uh, and I thought it was great. It was, eight, it was an 80-minute mashup of, of the way VR has been depicted in the last, like, 40 years of film, right? Clips from Lawnmower Man and Virtuosity and all that stuff. And at the, the end of that, there was a panel uh, that a, a friend of mine was actually on they just started talking about VR and what VR did. And there were VR filmmakers on the panel and there right. were VR filmmakers in the audience. And it was kind of fun to look at when VR was a fiction 
how we were writing about it and how we were depicting it in and film. And now that it's not. And now that it's not, okay, well, what's going on? And one of the chilling things that um, the guy who directed The Lawnmower Man, who was also on the panel, said was um, there have already been studies about the addictive qualities of immersion, right? Unlike a book, right? And actually, right. I'm not going to say this. There are people who, who read books and get completely immersed well, and yes, get obsessed. Yes, yes. But, but the, there is a, an addictive quality to being completely immersed in a different world, far more than just watching movies or reading a book or something like that. And looking at those dangers, I think, are, is also very interesting and vital to understanding the medium, right? I mean, we could think about all the benefits and the wonderful, but also but look at... there's some bad shit that could... There's some bad shit that can happen, yeah. And like, um, I mean, I'm not uh, qualified enough to really go into the details of this stuff, but from what I've read, it's scary, right? People start losing a sense of what reality actually is. I mean, have you ever played a video game for like 16 hours straight and then try to go into the rest of the world and you're like... Uh, this is a daily thing for me. Okay, well then there you go. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like, you know, like you, you play video games for several hours and then you walk into the street and you're like, oh, you oh lose time. One you of lose. the problems with like a video game yeah. is you lose time. I, I, my wife goes to bed and I'll be playing a video game or something and I go to bed like eight hours later. Yes. You know, when I was playing, when I was playing video games a lot, that's what was going on. Like I, Claire would go to bed. I'd start a game at 10. It'd be 2.30. It'd be like 4 in the morning. Oh my God. Like, like, what I've happened? been playing this because you're so immersed into this yeah. world that you don't, it's always the next thing coming. Like yeah. the thing with like a movie is like you're waiting in anticipation for the thing to end. With like the video game, you're waiting in anticipation to figure something out, but it doesn't happen for hours and hours and hours. Right, exactly. Yeah. And again, it's going to be more of a problem for VR, VR. gaming than it is, I think, for VR film. Because I feel like VR film, there's still a finite, and well, to it. I think the thing with VR and like the film aspect of that too, it doesn't even have to be. You're thinking of VR in terms of a film at like a uh, a start point and an end point. If yeah. you deal with something that's VR and it's not a game, yeah, but it is an open world, yes, then you're fucked. Then you're fucked. Yeah, and and you and, know what and, I mean. Yeah, you could definitely. I mean, imagine how addictive Sims was or something like that. Well, now imagine how addictive the VR version yeah. of Sims is going to be. You know. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting and it's a, it's a different set of questions than, uh, that, that I'm, what I'm asking, uh, I'm asking more questions about what is the language of immersion and what are the narrative and vital techniques that we need in that world to right. be able to create compelling art, entertainment, content, content. But yeah, there's this whole other set of questions that this I think is, exciting. is really interesting. Lewis, um, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was, it was really great. fun. <laughs> See you, dude.